and welcome to the Unfuck Your Biz podcast, a show for creatives to encourage and inspire through actionable legal, tax, money, and business topics. I'm Braden Drake, an author, lawyer, tax pro, and educator. If you are ready to get your legal and tax shit legit, you are in the right place. But before we fully dive in, here is a quick word from my sponsors. This episode is brought to you by my free training, The Three Legal and Tax Mistakes Made by New and Experienced Business Owners and How You Can Avoid Them. Here's the thing. There's a few key things we've all got to do to make sure we unfuck our biz. I've seen all the mistakes and I know how to help you get past them. So here's what I want you to do. Go to www.unfuckyourbiz.com, sign up for the free training, watch it, and do at least one of the homework assignments I share in the masterclass. Promise? Okay, now let's dive into the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. I am joined again today by Teresa Spates, Manager of Resolutions at Community Tax LLC. Teresa shared with us on Tuesday that she's a tax controversy attorney. Teresa's back with us today. How are you doing, Teresa? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am great and strangely and probably we might be the only two. I'm like very excited to have this conversation. (laughs) I'm so excited. I love talking about tax. But, you know, most people don't. But this is actually really, really good. Yes. Uh, agreed. When we're going to educate the people on today's podcast episode. So even if you're not excited about it, if you've made it this far into the episode, you know, buckle in. It's going to be a good time. You're going to learn a lot. So, <laughs> Teresa, can you tell us in a little bit more detail what tax controversy means and what it is that you do? Yes. So tax controversy means that you owe the IRS money um, and it could be for various reasons. It could be, you know, a 401k that you took out or, you know, your business had a couple rough years or you just didn't pay your uh, employment taxes. It ranges from individuals all the way to big hefty C corporation, big businesses. Um, So we do all of that and everything in between. And it's just If you have tax liabilities or you just owe money to the government, state or federal, then, um, and you need help, we're here for you. So we're basically practitioners, we're attorneys, we're enrolled agents, uh, CPAs that deal exclusively with the Internal Revenue Service and the state taxing authorities to help uh, you navigate through this debt. And hopefully we can settle the debt, but if not, we definitely want to do, you know, some other alternate options so that you can get into either a reasonable payment plan or into a federal hardship if you can't afford to make payments. And you are, you're a fellow tax attorney like myself, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for to let everyone know, I think this is kind of a fun story. We actually, Teresa and I just met lot, maybe two weeks ago, I think it was last week, on Clubhouse of all places. Yeah. We're recording this in December, so at the time, like, Clubhouse is very new. I don't know, maybe by the time this podcast episode releases, everyone will be on and it will be all the rage. <laughs> I know, right? It was like such a random thing, and I'm just like, I'm going to friend this guy. He looks cool. <laughs> yeah, and we, we started chatting, and here here we are a week later. So, Teresa, I did um, – so we're both tax attorneys. Most people have no idea what tax attorneys do. I always explain to people, <laughs> usually tax attorneys either work in planning. So they're like on the front end, helping people, you know, set up businesses, doing tax planning, or they're on the back end doing tax controversy, what it, which is what it is that you do. So 
-hmm. I dabbled in tax controversy a little bit. I wouldn't even really say I dabbled. I volunteered at a taxpayer clinic for low-income people who had these kind of problems. Their problems were always very kind of specific. And then I also, you know, talked with like a handful of people outside of that. So I have a handful of IRS stories. I imagine that you probably have like buckets full of them. <laughs> Too many of them. Um, yes, I am definitely on the back end. I do do some tax planning as well. Um, usually after we've got you out of this mess, now we need to go through and fix your mess and make sure you don't <laughs> you know, keep going down this path. But for the most part, we're definitely on the back end. Nice. Okay, so curious with... With this content, so I'll give you some context. Most of my listeners, you know, they're, you know, maybe maybe six-figure businesses, but a lot of businesses under six figures, they're maybe profiting, you know, anywhere from $10,000 to $50,000, $100,000 in their business. So definitely, I actually call all of us micro-businesses because usually they count small businesses up to $25 million. <laughs> I'm curious though, what are the most common issues you see with micro-businesses when it comes to getting in trouble with the IRS? Um, the most common is usually people aren't keeping really good books and commingling. That's probably the number one issue for micro businesses is that you may not even be using your personal bank account as your business bank account. Uh, you have no experience with bookkeeping at all. Um, so you're just merging everything together, paying your mortgage or your rent out of your business. That's usually the number one problem. Um, commingling is a really bad way to start your business, but it's really common. And so usually people don't have the documentation for like loans or anything. It really is all the paperwork. So people right. are trying to get their business off the ground and they're not really worried about the paperwork aspect on the back end. And that's the one thing that can drive your business right in the ground instantly. Can you tell us a little bit more like exactly why commingling is bad? I mean, I always, I put it in my own words, but I'm curious, like if someone would say, I'm a sole proprietor. I'm not an LLC. I'm like just starting my business. Like, do I absolutely have to have a business account? Like, why do I need to do that? Yes. Um, the biggest issue is like, let's say you do get in trouble with the Internal Revenue Service. And let's say your grandma gave you $100 and your auntie and uncles gave you like $50 for your birthday or something. When the IRS is auditing you, they use all of the income that you received into that bank account as business income. So they don't care about your gifts or anything else that you received. Um, any kind of cash, any deposits that were made into that account is considered a business income. And then that means that there should be taxes associated with that income. So when you're commingling all your accounts together, you can't really determine like, hey, was this just money I received for like as a gift from a friend? Or was this money that is actually going towards the business? And, you know, maybe at the time you remember that, but how about three years later when the IRS is actually auditing you? Do you really remember where that $100 deposit came from? Or do you really remember like that $3,000 personal loan you took out to pay your credit cards off? Do you really want that to be included as business income? You know, there's everything that you put inside that account is being 
picked at by the Internal Revenue Service, every expense that you claim. So when you just keep it in your business, under your business bank account, it's a lot easier to explain like why you spent $60 at Walmart, you know, for supplies for your business, like paper and ink. But if you spent $60 out of your personal account, can you, do you have the receipt from three years ago to say that you were not using that for food or diapers? Like it's very critical for you to keep your business to your business and your personal to your personal. So since you, since you brought up the topic of receipts, like this is a really big question. I get this question all the time. Let's say that you, you have done a good job. You've separated your business expenses. So I go to Target. I have like all my food up front on the little conveyor belt, whatever they call that, the register. I put the little bar down and then I have like my pens, my paper for my business stuff in the back. I do two separate transactions, like a good business owner. Good job. But, thank you. But I get audited two years later. Is the IRS going to say we have to have that receipt or is the fact that it's on your business bank record enough to satisfy them? Technically, you should have the receipt. Um, but if you don't, it's a much better argument for us to make that we can pull up your personal um, bank accounts and we can show your business bank accounts and show how you made separate transactions. So let's say that you did go to Target and you, um, on the front end, you spent food on the back end, you had your business and you used your business income. I'd say, hey, give me your bank, your personal bank accounts from this month as well. And then I can show how you are really diligent about making sure that I can create a pattern. Like, look at this pattern that he always does. He always makes sure that this is his personal and he always makes sure that this is his business. So we can say more likely than not, which the standard is really low for, you know, audits, is more likely than not, he is using this as a business expense. If you're not doing that, if it's just like, oh, you know, it's all like, random then i'm gonna be like hey call target <laughs> give them your credit card give them this transaction number and like let's get at least a few receipts so that we can show that these were business uh business based versus personal another good thing i would suggest is when you're like pick a store pick a store you like office max target walmart whatever um sign up for them to email the receipt to you and then you'll always have that and make sure you have it attached to your business email. So you'll just always have the receipt in your business email. So if you ever get audited, you can just pull up all of those receipts. They just already live as an actual email and you can even make a, like a receipts 2020, you know, folder and just shove them in there. And then you never really have to print out or keep all of those really old receipts for three years. Super smart. Love that idea. Well, I mean, what I've always done is I always just had like a literal, I carry a man bag. I have like a literal envelope, but just put all the receipts in, throw them in a shoebox. Cause I always tell people, I was like your bookkeeping, you can do your bookkeeping from your business bank account. You don't have to have the receipts for the bookkeeping. The receipts are for the just audit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But and I love all the, matches. yeah, I love all the context you gave there because this is this is what I always tell people, but I think sometimes I don't have enough like confidence in myself to really tell them. Technically, you have to have the receipt, but you know, it's like you can kind of find <laughs> ways around it. Because I did, I did at my old office, there was an, someone who came to work in my office. I worked at WeWork, really big company. 
and she had been an IRS auditor for 10 years. And she told me after I'd basically given people the same guidance you had for a couple of years, she was like, no, I have to have, when I worked there, I had to have a receipt for absolutely everything. And I couldn't tell, I was like, is she just blowing smoke or was she just one hard ass of an IRS auditor? I don't know. <laughs> no, you really should have a receipt for everything, but um, you may have to fight through the regular auditor. So sometimes if I know that you don't have receipts, like if you come to me and you're like, hey, I'm getting audited and I don't have all of my receipts, the first thing I'm gonna think is, all right, we're gonna be fighting this and we're not gonna get through it with an auditor. So what we'll do is we'll put together the best packet that we can, knowing that we're gonna go to that auditor and we're basically gonna appeal this. We're just waiting for them to reject the audit and say like, you're gonna owe more money so that we can file an appeal. And then we'll go to the appeals officer who's usually more reasonable usually is an attorney and is like all right you know based off of reasonable expectations and expenses for this type of business this is logical they're not going to go through line by line to make sure that every single item has a receipt as long as it looks good and it sounds right then they'll usually let you go through because they don't want to go to tax court for an audit interesting so i had when i was in my tax program i had to take i think it was called tax I don't, I don't even, tax penalties and principles, something like that. And my professor, he was an experienced tax controversy attorney. And I remember he would always tell us, if you ever get audited, see if you can negotiate by having them start at one category and have them look at like a couple of categories of expenses that you have um, substantiated pretty well. Is that a tactic people can really use? Like how, how would that work? It depends on how hardline your auditor is. Um, what I always suggest is whatever documentation that you actually do have, we're going to stuff the good stuff in the beginning and in the end. And then all the stuff that's kind of shady, we're going to put it in the middle <laughs> because no one's really looking through the middle as much as you think. Like they open, so usually I create a binder and they'll open up that binder. It's all tabbed out. It looks all really nice and professional and they'll like flip to a page, especially if it's nice and thick. Um, and then they'll pull out a couple of receipts and then they'll look in the spreadsheet, make sure that that's right. And then they'll do the same thing. They'll just flip to the back and look at the end and then you know maybe one thing in the middle and as long as everything looks pretty decent you can fly through kind of under the radar but um if you don't have anything at all <laughs> you're definitely going to be looking more towards an appeal and less of trying to get through to the regular auditor but yeah that's really great advice it's just make sure you're padding it the right way it's a nice little sandwich Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Because I mean, if we, if we really think about it, the IRS, just like the rest of us, they have a limited resources. Their job is to collect as much revenue as possible. Exactly. So, you know, if they flip through your book and they're like, all right, this person, I might be able to squeeze another $1,000 out of them, but I'm not going to, you know, spend too much of my time. I'm going to go after this other person who didn't hire Teresa is clearly a mess and I might be able to get $20,000 out of them instead. Exactly. Um, even I would say for an audit, you always want to have someone represent you because I've had friends who are CPAs who are like, I don't need you. I'm good. I'm going to go to this audit. I'm a CPA. I've done everything right. And they get there and they just run them over. And it's like, I had all my documentation. Like, what is this? And honestly, sometimes it's the fact that you just have representation that they're like, uh, it's just not worth fighting this person because they've got representation. Versus That's like someone who walks in by themselves. Yeah, yeah the IRS is, is a collection agency, you know. Their job's to collect money. 
yeah, they're, they're kind of like, well, it's not, you know, they hired someone, so they're not, it's not, not really worth dealing with them, basically. Exactly. While we're on that topic, I'm curious, and I know that you probably can't share exact numbers, but can you give any, like, estimations of how much it would cost to help, to hire someone to help with an audit? Because I'm just trying to think, like, cost-benefit analysis, like, how much money do they need to be coming after me with? For me just to say oh i'll just pay like i'm not even going to worry about it i'll just pay it versus should i hire someone to help me fight this oh yeah no that is a very valid question and i would say if the irs is saying you're going to owe five thousand dollars or more it's worth hiring somebody if you're going to hire if you're going to owe the irs less than five thousand dollars it's not worth your time or your money because more than likely you're going to be paying somebody either $5,000 or <laughs> a little bit less to help fight your audit and they may not come out successful. So then you may feel like, oh no, now I've paid somebody to represent me and I still owe the IRS. So if it's $5,000 or less, uh, don't even think about hiring anybody, just go for it. If it's more than 5,000, even if you're on the border, if it's like five to 7,000, that's worth having someone look at it, try to get a couple of estimates. Never just go to one place and um, or that one commercial that you saw. Um, just shop around, uh, make sure that they're credible and that they're honest and that they're giving you actually good feedback. If they don't ask to see any of your documents, if they don't ask if you have any proof of any of these claims, just hang up the phone and pick the next company <laughs> because <laughs> they are just going to take your money. Um, if they are not a flat fee, run because audits cost a lot of time. They take a lot of time to work through. And if they're like, oh, we charge you hourly, you are going to be paying a very pretty penny. It is, it's very intensive on the attorney side of it. Um, so it's time, it's time intensive. Okay, those are fa some fantastic tips. So to recap for everyone, if the like if they're if the IRS is coming after you for less than five thousand dollars, probably not worth hiring someone. If it's more than that, make sure that these people charge a flat fee and ask for some documents up front before you engage with them as your attorney. Exactly. So, okay, I want to get I kind of want to get onto the topic of like back taxes and penalties. So we we were talking about you know when you get audited by the IRS. Um, usually something's going to trigger an audit, but let's kind of flip to the perspective of we get a letter from the IRS and they say, hey, you owe us $5,000. And we're thinking in the back of, back of our mind, yeah, I probably do owe you $5,000. Probably not going to hire a tax attorney at that point to try to fight it, but we do need some options to get up to speed. So what are we looking to when it comes to like that point of, in time? Right. So if you've been audited or if you end up owing a balance to the IRS and you're like, I'm not fighting the tax due, like I know I owe that money, then at that point, you're going to be looking at resolution options. How am I going to resolve the debt that I owe? That's all going to be dependent on your assets, your income and your expenses. So you may not need representation if you're like, hey, you know, I'm going to pay this back in full. I don't have a problem paying the $5,000. I just need to make the payments over time. Pick up the phone, call the IRS, set up your streamlined installment agreement. It's going to be cover over 72 months. Um, so that's six years you get <laughs> to pay back the debt. There are, there is that. Sorry, you can do that over the phone. You don't, 
or do you have to apply online? You can do it either way. You can do it online or you can call and do it over the phone. Oh, the awesome. online is great. Um, if you've already received a letter it, in the right hand side to have a caller ID number that you use and you'll just plug that into the IRS website with your name and your information and once they verify that it's you, then they can go ahead and set you up a payment plan. I think it's like a $34 user fee. If you call then um, you can set it up over the phone with them as well. They'll always give you the lowest amount that you have to pay over the six years. And that you can also do on your own as long as you know that you have the funds to pay it back. If you're like, I can't pay this back in six years. Like I've done the math, which is literally taking what I owe and divided it by 72 and I can't afford to pay it. That's when you need to get a tax controversy attorney or um, a practitioner is what we call ourselves. Um, so you need to call somebody, hire someone, because you're going to need to negotiate with the Internal Revenue Service and try to get you into a payment plan that you can afford. And at that point, it becomes imperative to like, what is your income? What are your expenses? What are your assets? And now we have to fight all of these things with the Internal Revenue Service to prove that you can't afford to make the payment to the IRS. That's when you really need someone. Okay, I, I love the I love that you gave kind of the target of six years because that I don't think I've heard before. Like I tell people about OICs, we'll get into that in a few minutes. Um, but usually I'm like, it's kind of hard for me to measure that. So let's let's look at a hypothetical. I just did some super quick math on my phone calculator, and if you owe ten thousand dollars in taxes, so you're saying divide that by seventy two. That's the number of months you'd have to pay it off, right? Right. So that comes out to all round up one hundred and forty dollars a month. So you're basically then asking yourself, can I afford to pay $140 per month? Is that correct? Exactly. Now there's going to be some interest and penalties over time. So you could always add about like 50 bucks to that and say, you know, can I afford to pay $189, $190 for the next six years? If you're like, yeah, I got 200 bucks for six years, go ahead and set up your payment plan and move on. If you're like, no, I don't have the $200 or I don't have time to call the IRS to set this up and I tried the online thing and it doesn't work for me, which definitely happens because it's the government and their website's always <laughs> broken. Um, so then you can hire somebody, but obviously don't overpay. If they're just setting up a streamlined installment agreement, it shouldn't be more than $1,000. It's like, it's not that complicated. So don't overpay for the service. So let's, let's talk about what not affording that actually looks like, because I guess in, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about an offer and compromise. Maybe, maybe I'll go ahead and have you explain what an offer and compromise is and when you would do that as opposed to like a streamlined installment agreement. Oh, yeah. So basically, if you can't afford to pay for the streamlined installment agreement, then you can start to look at other options. So that's always the first step. Can I afford to pay for the streamlined installment? That's the divided by six years. If you can afford to pay that, then you move on. Um, if you can't, then it's like, okay, let's talk about, uh, I'd like to do a partial pay installment agreement, which means you can pay like $100 a month. So then that's a better option for you because you're paying that over time. You're not going to pay back the full debt. But if you want to do an offer and compromise, that's the big boy. That's the Cadillac of the resolution industry. <laughs> um, it's the best. It's like basically settling the debt for little to nothing. Um, but it's based on what you can actually afford to pay. So they look at your assets. Do you have 401k? So, oh, yeah. Go ahead. What's the difference? So the... Um... 
What was the second one that you said? Basically, a partial, a partial payment? Yeah, partial pay installment agreement. Basically means I can't afford to pay the full amount of the streamlined installment agreement, but I can pay a portion of it. I just can't afford to pay the big one. So that so one... So for that one, they would basically forgive whatever's remaining at the end of six years? Yes. It's okay. great. It's another great deal. Nice. So I know the OIC, the offer and compromise application is pretty lengthy. Can you, so I, sorry, I cut you off while you were explaining it, but I, I guess my follow-up question would be, is the partial payment application easier? Can you, um, I guess I'm asking you to answer like three questions at once as you, as you <laughs> continue your previous thought. Oh, I love it. The partial pay installment agreement paperwork is way easier than the offer and compromise. Uh, the only downfall of that program is that if your income does rise over years, like let's say right now you're only making $30,000 a year, but in four years you start making $90,000 a year, they can come back and revisit the plan and say, hey, can you afford to make more money or can you afford to pay more money now? So it's not guaranteed that it's going to stay at that low amount for the next six years. That's the only downfall of that program. And also that program goes through your collection statute expiration date, which is like the statute of limitations for tax for how long they can collect from you. Gotcha. Okay. So that, that one may be kind of iffy if you're an entrepreneur and expect continued increases in income. Oh yeah. That one is like, yeah, I could see it makes a lot of sense if you have a W-2 and you're like, I'm in this job until I retire. And I'm, other than the cost of living adjustment, I don't see my income going up. Exactly. That one's perfect if you're just like, you know, you're on Social Security income or you're just working in regular W-2. If you are self-employed, it's an iffy program unless, you know, you never plan to make more money with your business, which is like, why are you doing that business if you're not going to make more money? <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like, it's like, I'm not going to just allow myself to only pay $100 rather than $200 to the IRS when instead I could focus on growing my business by ten dollars or $20,000 a year. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Let's dig a little bit more into the offer and compromise. Cause this is, I think this is always top of mind for me because for context, I said, I volunteered at the low income taxpayer clinic, pretty much everyone that we worked with like automatically qualified for this, but <laughs> um, give some context on like what it is and who generally qualifies. Because what I really want to dig into is what does I can't afford $190 a month actually look like? Not like I feel like I can't afford it, but I actually can't afford it. Yes. So the offer and compromise program is basically a settlement program with the Internal Revenue Service. The only way you're going to settle your debt, regardless of what you heard from your cousin's best friend's sister, um, you cannot just call the IRS and settle the debt over the phone. So the offer and compromise program is it. Basically, what it means is that your assets, your income, and your expenses all show that you cannot afford to pay the Internal Revenue Service. They have a doubt as to collectability from you over time. And that basically means you don't have any assets or you have minimal assets or they are encumbered, um, like you got huge loans on them or something. Um, and then your income and your expenses are so low that you will not be able to pay the streamlined installment agreement amount. And can you give some examples on like what would be considered too low to even do a like a partial uh, installment agreement? 
Oh, if you qualify for the partial pay installment agreement, you might be a good candidate for the offer and compromise. Okay. So those two things kind of go together. Um, if you qualify for a federal hardship, you also might be a good candidate. And I always say might because the assets are the key here. Um, when we're talking to the Internal Revenue Service, on the collection side, they can only see so much of your assets. They only have so many records. The offer and compromise department has access to everything that you've ever signed your name on to. So all of your 401k, they have access to um, all your motor vehicles, everything that you've ever like sent into a government agency, the IRS can get their hands on. That is the settlement department. So if you're like trying to fake the funk here, like, oh, I forgot about that IRA I got from my job, you know, 10 years ago, the IRS didn't. And they can see that and they're going to say, hey, you have enough money in there to pay back your debt. So basically what you're saying is I don't have enough money anywhere to ever pay back this money to you. So you should just forgive the debt that I have. Yeah, I think people often forget about their assets because you're like in the back of your mind, you're like, well, I own a car. And in the back of the IRS's mind, they're like, yeah, that's a car that you can sell to give us our money. Exactly. And that's exactly how they think about it. They're like, oh, you're like, oh, I only have, you know, $2,000 in the bank. And they're like, okay, great. $1,000 of that is mine. And they're like, oh, well, I, you know, I have a house, but you know, the mortgage company owns the house. The mortgage company does not own your house. You own the house and they have a lien on your house. Mm -hmm. How much it's worth if you were to sell it. That's what the IRS is looking at. So they're like, hey, well, if you would put that on the market today and you live in California, um, then I'm going to get all my money back. <laughs> yeah, the market so, is definitely hot in California right now. Exactly. Not good news, I guess, if you're, you know, having problems with the IRS. The, the OIC, though, I do like to bring it up because, like, when I worked on these, we had a lot of people who owed, you know, ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, and you'd get their debts, basically, they'd get their debts settled for almost nothing. It would be like 250 bucks, 500 bucks. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're listening to this and you're nodding your head and you're like, yeah, that sounds like something I could do, then it's worth looking into. I think most of us instinctively know like if we're not going to qualify for that type of program. Like if you feel like, if you feel like, well, I probably shouldn't go there, but I'm going to anyway. If, if you <laughs> if you feel like at the end of the day, like money, like money's hard and things are kind of a struggle, but you're not like really stressed out about your general like well being, and you have some assets that you can lean on, then it sounds like to me an OICs might not probably not be an option. That's very true. If you are not living paycheck to paycheck or job to job, contract to contract, this is not the program for you. These are people that are living like super rough. Now, there are some offer and compromises. Like if you owe, like I had one guy, he owed $3 million to the Internal Revenue Service. Um, with all his assets, his income and expenses, like we were able to get him an offer and compromise for like $250,000. That's still a great deal when you owe $3 million to the IRS. Um, so there are ways that we can, you know, as long as we're looking at everything, we're being completely honest with ourselves and with your practitioner, then we can definitely make it happen and give you a realistic number on what you're looking what you're actually looking at to pay for your offer and compromise. If you just call a company and they're like, yeah, we think you're going to qualify for it, but they didn't actually collect any information from you, you, you're not, <laughs> you're not,
not no. going to qualify for it um, because it is, it's a very intensive program. It is a lot of paperwork. It is a lot of follow-up. Um, and if you don't know what you're doing, it's easy to mess up. Can so. you tell us, because I know that people who are listening to this are going to be curious because I know I would be, that person who owed $3 million, what were they doing to have made enough income to owe that much in taxes to begin with? <laughs> Well, our self-employed folks, you know, we can make a lot of money. Uh So, um, well, that guy, he actually worked as an investor. And so he ended up getting like huge bonuses from work. And he was claiming like 10 people, you know, when he was doing his withholding, but it was just him and his wife. So he had (laughs) these huge, huge bonuses. And then he just wasn't paying the taxes on the bonuses. Um, But I've had people who are just like truck drivers who end up in millions of dollars of debt because they never make their estimated tax payments. So they just end up collecting, you know, 70,000, $80,000, $90,000 of debt of tax debt every year and that stuff all adds up when you include the penalties and the interest and it's pretty easy to hit a million dollars especially if you have employees and you haven't been paying your uh, federal tax deposits or you're not doing the employer contribution uh, for your form 941s then all of that adds up and if you're if you're not paying your federal tax deposits, then you're going to get a trust fund recovery penalty. Mm. That says us to you personally. And it's very easy at that point to rack up millions of dollars of debt. Yeah. This is why, especially as soon as you have to get on payroll, either you form an S-corp, you put yourself on payroll, you hire your first employee. I do not fuck around with payroll tax. This is why I'm an affiliate for Gusto payroll. I tell everyone to get on Gusto because Gusto will take care of all of those payroll taxes for you. I do not play around with payroll tax. If you have employees, <laughs> you better get with the per- you better get with Gusto immediately and take care of that and make sure they have access to your bank accounts and they're paying those federal tax deposits and filing your 941s on time. It's the number one way people end up getting levied, the number one way that you end up with a bunch of tax debt easiest way to rack up thousands on thousands of dollars of yeah. tax debt that's um, that's like that's high stakes stuff Mo- like most of the people that join my course programs they have two thousand three thousand maybe up to ten thousand dollars in debt for just not paying quarterly taxes on their income tax that you can you know bounce back from but as soon as you start hiring employees it's, it's time to get serious yeah One, and- another another note i wanted to bring up you mentioned the guy who basically was sounded like he was more or less falsifying employees that he didn't actually have. (laughs) I've actually seen the flip side of this, which is really interesting. We had, like, I talked to a lady who ended up owing close to $100,000 in taxes. And the reason why was because she didn't take any contractor or employee expenses. And the reason why she didn't do that was because all of the people working in the family restaurant that she owned were undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. And very common. Yeah, this stuff, this is why I always tell people, like, you got to take your business really seriously. And obviously, that's kind of an extreme example. But that's at the end of the day, example. yeah, yeah, <laughs> sadly, it is, it is pretty common. But you're kind of, but it's the same thing when people um, over inflate their deductions, and then they go to apply for PPP loans. It's by not taking your business seriously and kind of trying to skirt around this. There are additional problems you can have aside from taxes, like, you know, the PPP, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. It's very true. And um, if you are, 
you know, hiring people who are undocumented, then you just know that that's a business expense for as taxes are concerned that you're going to have to pay out. And you just need to think about that and say, okay, I know I'm not going to be able to claim this expense. Am I making enough profit to be able to cover that it's going to look like I'm making huge profits when I'm really not? And the IRS does not budge on undocumented people being included as contractors when it comes to being audited. It just is automatically wiped out. Yeah. So, yeah, so what, what we're talking about here, it all comes down to profit, right? So if you if you run a restaurant and you show $300,000 in, in income, I have no idea how much restaurants make, probably more than that. But let's say- Yeah, way more. Yeah, way more. Let's say $300,000 <laughs> to make it easy. You have, and 100,000 of that goes to your food. And then 100,000 of that goes to your contractors. So if you're not taking a deduction for those contractor payments, now you're paying tax on $200,000 of profit instead of 100,000. And you can see how quickly that tax bill is gonna be much more expensive than what you literally can afford because you're not actually making any money. Right, exactly. So if you're like, oh, it's just cheaper to hire them. It's like, is it really? Like, make sure you're doing a cost benefit analysis. Like, are you really at the end of the day at when you're finished paying all those taxes on money that you technically don't have? Is it is it cheaper? Or is it just go ahead and hire uh people who you can claim on your taxes and show your actual expenses like is that cheaper i feel i feel like by the end of this episode people are going to be like reaching for a bottle of wine we're, we're, probably <laughs> freaking, we're probably freaking everyone out but you know sometimes you need you need a good scare to get the ship turned around in your business it's so funny. Usually by the time people come see me, they're just like, so I've, I have a million letters. I buried them all in the sand. My head's been in the sand for years. And it's like, if you would have just came the first year that this happened, it would have been so much easier to get you out than, yeah. you know, five or six years later when the revenue officer is standing in your business and you're trying to figure out like, am I going to be able to keep my stove? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, I mean, Hey, this is, this is why I titled the podcast unfuck your biz because when we get into the, <laughs> when we get into the business world, what I always tell people is in marketing language, we say whether someone's problem aware. So they always say someone has to be aware of their problem before you can sell them the solution to their problem. Well, I give solutions to problems, but usually when you're in your first year of business, you don't even know that problem exists until you've sure. already fucked things up a little bit. So that's why most of the people who kind of, you know, listen to the podcast, buy the programs have been in business for more than two years. But if you're listening as a brand newbie, you are well ahead of the curve and you're going to hopefully, you know, hopefully you won't ever have to hire Teresa. But if you do have to hire someone, Teresa would be a, a great person to go to. Well, thank you. Yes. If you do have to hire someone, definitely, you know, hire me first. But if not me, then check around. Um, it all depends on what your finances look like. But at the end of the day, the number one question in your head should be, is it worth my business closing? Because that can happen. Yeah. And you don't want to lose your livelihood because you went with the cheapest option. So just always like, really think about that. <laughs> yeah, the cheapest option. Oh, God, I think I put a lot. I think I actually wrote that in my book. So I was like, if you're gonna if you if you get yourself into back taxes, especially if you're behind on tax returns, do not hire your next accountant based on who's cheapest, because that yes. person's that person's not going to be able to get you out of the hole that you already dug for yourself. <laughs> that okay. is so true. 
Love that. If people, if anyone's listening to this and they actually do need some professional help and they're interested in reaching out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, you can either just go ahead and email me at a T Daniel T D A N as in Nancy I E L at communitytax.com C O M M U N I T Y tax T A X dot com. Um, or you can go ahead and call community tax and just say, Teresa sent me. They'll just forward you right over to me because they're like, oh, okay, if Teresa sent you, then it's a problem. <laughs> okay. okay um, and then that's either way, like, I'm the only Teresa there and I'm the manager. So they are going to know that it's for me. Um, but otherwise, you can always call me at 773-724-2795. Once again, that's 773-724-2795. Beautiful. And then final question. I always share, I have my own Facebook group. It's called Braden's Besties, Creatives Getting Their Legal and Tax Shit Legit. Everyone should come hang out. It's a good time. Uh, I do Q&As every Friday. But if anyone's listening wants to become Teresa's bestie as well, what's the best way for them to do that? Are you active on social media? Where should they go? Oh, I love that. Um, yes, you can just friend me on Instagram under Reese Spates. And if you're on Facebook, I'm Teresa Spates. So it's probably the easiest to find me there. <laughs> okay, beautiful. We will put, um, we'll make sure to put your Instagram uh, information and hyperlink and all that in the show notes. If you're still listening to the podcast, everyone, you know, if you, maybe you checked out the show notes in the past and you were like, Brayden, these are a hot mess express. They were, <laughs> I'll own it. It's because I did them. I have now hired someone much more organized than myself to do the show notes. So you can be assured that they're in tip top shape. So go to the show notes, get all of Teresa's information. Teresa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was really a fantastic episode with so much good information. So I very much appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. You too. Goodbye. Hey there. Before you go, I wanted to give a quick thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. If you loved it, I would love for you to take a screenshot of the episode or snap a quick selfie while you are listening. Share it on social and give me a tag. It'll help other kick-ass entrepreneurs like yourself find the show. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Meanwhile, let's roll up our sleeves and unfuck that biz.